0: Move Forward Radio is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Find a physical therapist near you at MoveForwardPT.com. You're listening to Move Forward Radio, a podcast featuring interviews with physical therapists and other healthcare experts with advice on how you can move forward.
1: Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Eric Reese. What exactly is pain, and what are the most effective and least harmful ways for healthcare professionals to address it? Reaching a national consensus on the answers to those questions and taking action accordingly never has been as important as it is now, with the nation in the grips of an opioid addiction crisis that is killing Americans by the tens of thousands annually. That's the stance taken by cardiologist Haider Virach whose recent op-ed in the New York Times bore the headline, Is Pain a Sensation or an Emotion? In this episode of Move Forward Radio, he expands on that piece, explaining what that question is all about, how it is that modern society could learn something from the ancient Greeks' conception of pain and suffering, what he feels are the keys to decreasing opioid use, and why exercise and physical therapy, per APTA's Choose PT campaign, must be cornerstones of that effort. Here's our conversation. So, Haider, you recently wrote about pain in an op-ed piece for the New York Times. The headline of that essay asked the question, Is Pain a Sensation or an Emotion? You discussed a lot of things within a very limited word count, ranging from how people have looked at pain historically to the ways in which it tends to be perceived now and the consequences of that perception. So let's explore each of those elements in a little bit more detail. You start by noting that Americans now are likelier to die from an opioid overdose than in a car accident. So to begin to understand how such a startling thing can be true, you suggested, it's instructive to, quote, unquote, ponder the very nature of pain and how it's been regarded over the centuries. What did you mean by that statement, ponder the very nature of pain?
2: Well, Eric, thank you for talking to me about this important topic. You
1: know, I think at this point, a lot of people, I, you know, when
2: something like the opioid epidemic and this this great catastrophe and tragedy has occurred, I think it's always important to really you know, I think pause and not only reflect on the impact of the tragedy has been, but really think about what really brought us to this point. And really what brought us to this point was this idea um, that there was an untreated epidemic of chronic pain in this country and that we needed to do everything we can uh, to be able to address that. And I think that that's a very, that statement still true. Unfortunately, despite the, despite how many more opioids we use now than we used before, we still have a lot of chronic pain in our society, in our community. So then that made me think about this, this idea about, well, if we had this idea about pain and we, we found a way to be able to and certainly, I think in the acute setting, opioids can be very, very effective for treating pain. Then were we wrong about some of the assumptions of the priors that we had when it came to chronic pain? And, and, and I think that if we are going to move forward at, uh, and, and think about strategies that can help people with chronic pain in settings where uh, opioids have failed, then we really need to start thinking about the basic fundamental biology and the biopsychology, in fact, of chronic pain. And this led me to sort of study, and this was part of, uh, I was doing this research as part of an upcoming book on heart disease because, again, you know, pain is such a cardinal symptom of heart disease to begin with. And that's where I came across uh, a lot of Greek literature which defined, which basically discussed pain as an emotion, as a a passion. Uh, That's what pain was, in fact, referred to. And that led me down this road of thinking about, well, you know, this idea of chronic pain is a physical sensation in a pure sense led us down the sort of path of using opioids to, you know, quash that sensation, then, then maybe we are wrong about chronic pain to begin with, maybe it's less of a direct physical sensation the way that the sensation of touch or smell or um, vision is,
1: rather something a bit more complex when you talk about passion one of the things that you mention in your in your piece in the new york times is that it was thought of almost kind of in a in a in a religious sense at one point is correct that's absolutely correct.
2: And Eric, if, I, I think in many places in the world, I think if you go right now, it is still thought of in in a similar sort of in a religious context. Suffering or pain always had a was we couldn't really see pain, especially in the chronic setting. If you if you if you you know injured yourself, um, you uh, or if you had a wound, that pain was very visible because you could see that injury. But pain that was more insidious, that we we never really knew what. What caused it, and I think a lot of times we we look to the supernatural as a reason why we had pain um as a as a way of the divine sort of communicating with us or you know telling us something or uh, in in fact you know I went to medical school in Pakistan, and pain was never without a reason if someone had a had pain, they always associated some you know reason or meaning to that pain um and usually with some type of uh religious or spiritual meaning um it was a way of testing your faith or it was a way of uh, as a it was a um result of something bad or some act of unkindness that you'd done and and i think that that type of emotional and spiritual context um had always been there until um uh, really the 19th century when I think as our Western society uh, specifically, uh, you know, underwent this sort of secular revolution, not only was the society as, as, a, as a whole secularized, but the concept of pain was also secularized. And in fact, one of the things that we saw, and, and there's, I've referenced a lot of this work in the book, is that pain was associated with civilization. What that means is that I think a lot of people at that time, people like Nietzsche and other philosophers, basically said that only the most, quote-unquote, civilized people uh, felt pain the most. And that was one way that you could justify inflicting pain on people that you considered were less civilized than you. And it it, it, it became this, um, this intensely racial and... Uh, uh, sort of discriminatory view of pain that people that you felt were less civilized than you actually did not feel pain the way you did. And so it justified not only uh the desire to treat pain in the self with medications like morphine, but also a way that you could justify inflicting pain on others.
1: Well, it, it sounds like it must have been uh, 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 called upon as, as quite a, a justification for things like all the colonization of the 19th century as well. Absolutely, and um,
2: it is it, it is how all those people could sleep at night because wow. <laughs> just in their head to say that well, you know, these people are just not civilized enough to feel pain the way I feel pain because I'm mm-hmm. a civilized person um so yeah so and uh, but i think as, uh what that what that has done is that you know as as society has secularized i think there's a big spiritual void that a lot of people feel and i think uh, you know, when we have pain now and we we think of it as a purely physical sensation we it, it lacks meaning this the question of why me is
1: unanswered um in our current way of thinking about pain You you wrote in that piece, uh, it was interesting to me, uh, um, about the transition uh, being made from pain being regarded, as you put it, as a passion to be endured to a quote-unquote sensation to be quashed, and and I I imagine you would argue that that's still uh, kind of a a view toward pain that's, uh, that's perhaps too much in vogue. I think that that's certainly the case. In fact, uh, I think what
2: what really happened was that I think, especially in the 1990s, and uh, when there were a lot of new products in the market uh, for chronic pain, OxyContin by Purdue Pharmaceuticals is probably one of the more famous ones. This idea became that now that we have all these tools to address pain, then we should deploy them at scale. And um, and how do you treat something if you don't measure it? So this, there was a huge emphasis on really if uh, you know, trying to sort of develop a numerical scale for pain, to ask patients, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much pain are you in, 10 being the worst pain you have. And if you actually follow that scale, studies have shown that you actually can lead to more harm than good. But there is really this sort of national movement to designate pain as a vital sign, like heart rate or how fast you breathe or what your temperature is. Again, measuring those things is very different from measuring pain, which is, as anyone who's experienced pain, is a very, very subjective phenomenon. But this idea that we could reduce it down to the scale of 1 to 10 and then treat it appropriately then led to this has to be a very significant contributor to the opioid epidemic. And in fact, many of the organizations that first championed this way of thinking and now actively backed off from it, including um, the American Medical Association and the VA Health System and uh, the Joint Commission.
1: Picking up on what you were just talking about, about pain coming to be seen as a quote-unquote fifth vital sign, you wrote that the, the concept of pain as a as a purely physical phenomenon really kind of reached its height in the 1990s when that idea of the fifth vital sign kind of took hold. But you've also noted that there's a strong association between pain and mental health. One thing that I'm curious about, World War One, for instance, gave us the term shell shock. Amputee veterans struggled to adjust to civilian life after World War II, and, and PTSD came to be associated with Vietnam veterans in their successors in conflicts in the Persian Gulf and, and elsewhere. So why do you think the, the idea of pain as a multidimensional thing sort of has, has struggled to gain traction?
2: I don't know, and I I hope that that's changing right now, but if you think of, I mean, one of the, for example, like one, and and I couldn't agree more with your observation. If you look at one of the organizations that really championed this idea of treating pain as a fifth vital sign was, in fact, the Veterans Affairs, the Veterans Health Administration. And again, I think they did it with a good intention. They had a lot of veterans who were in a lot of, who had a lot of chronic pain. All, many of those veterans also had a lot of scars from battle and from war, and PTSD and um, and other mental health disorders. So the intention was the right intention was that you know how can we relieve the suffering of these veterans who have served this country? But the tools that we had were limited because they can only address one specific thing, and all, only mostly tested in the acute setting. I think that we just didn't anticipate what could go wrong at that point. I think that we have, we have we had this naive idea that if only we can get people on painkillers, which made sense to a lot of people, that that was the right way to treat pain. But I think now that we have a, that, I think that strategy in some part, you know, led to this big tragedy that we're now seeing in towns and cities across the country. I think this is the right time to really stop and think about this. Of course, I think what you don't want to do is fall into this extreme other position in which we don't treat people's pain with medical therapy, but I think if you're not going to rethink this whole paradigm of pain now, then when is a better time? And Mm -hmm. that's really how I ended up writing this piece.
1: So uh, does the current opioid crisis kind of have a starting point in your mind? I mean, does it go back to the widespread use of OxyContin in the mid to late 1990s? I think that that
2: coupled with, um, I think, some of the things that we talked about with, you know, big, large organizations uh, kind of getting behind this. Um, the American Pain Association, you know, is one of them that really coined this phrase, you know, the pain is a fifth vital sign. And again, as these lawsuits against Purdue Pharmaceuticals are now starting to show that this was not by accident, that the need was engineered to a great extent, and the, the adverse events were uh, overlooked. So I do think that the 1990s did provide this real sort of impetus to and again most of this is real we're talking about chronic pain and I think that the 1990s were the inflection point uh, where we ended up seeing um,
1: really skyrocketing demand and use of uh, opioid medications. You use the term chronic pain there and I think this would be a good point maybe just to uh, to make a distinction for listeners of this podcast between what you mean when you talk about acute pain versus chronic pain and, and how both of those figure into the discussion we're having.
2: So I think all of us are aware of what acute pain feels like. Um, you know, I think uh, whether you're, a, you know, starting from, you know, when you're a kid. I mean, I've seen my three-year-old, you know, run into, you know, other kids, and you know, there's this immediate reaction of pain, and 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 I think that that is one of the fundamental ingredients for our success as a species. I mean, this is a way that we know that we are causing some type of bodily harm to ourself, and that we need to not do it again. <laughs> Otherwise, Mm -hmm. um, it'll cause it could cause serious harm. That's why you know we don't jump off of trees at least more than once. But then, in some patients who have acute pain, such as for example, if you've had surgery, some of those patients will not have relief of pain over time. Most patients, for example, who've had surgery or who've had dental work or who have other sort of a brief, limited illness, will recover. But many patients don't uh the other uh thing that we um see is that we have a, in really an epidemic of musculoskeletal pain from chronic back pain chronic joint pain and that's a really big bucket in which uh, of of the, of this population and and back pain is you, you know obviously i think you can do Series of long interviews and that. But with, when these things stay on and are sort of unrelenting, they transform from something that's acute to something that's more chronic and unrelenting. And that's really the focus of this entire discussion. I think acute pain deserves to be treated aggressively with medications and other therapies, but really it's chronic pain that is much more, I think, difficult to manage and where the benefit of opioids is much more limited.
0: A quick break to tell you about Choose PT the American Physical Therapy Association's National Public Awareness Campaign. America is currently in the grips of an opioid epidemic. In some situations, dosed appropriately, prescription opioids are an appropriate part of medical treatment. But opioids only mask the sensation of pain, and opioid risks include depression, overdose, addiction, and withdrawal. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is urging healthcare providers to reduce the use of opioids, in favor of safer alternatives like physical therapy for treating pain. Learn how a physical therapist can help you at moveforwardpt.com slash choosept. And now, back to this episode of Move Forward Radio.
1: You made a really strong statement in, in the New York Times piece uh, about the, the, the sort of the overall embrace of, of opioids to treat uh, chronic pain, and you called it the worst medical mistake of our era. That's, that, that's a very strong statement. Could you, could you kind of expound on that a little
2: I mean, the fact that more people die of the opioid epidemic per year, then people died of the HIV epidemic at even at its peak in a year, I think should always, should at least makes me kind of stop in my tracks and think about, you know, this is horrific and whether this was something that we as a field or as a community, as a society contributed to. And, you know, again, I think that I I don't want to sort of make this only about prescription opioids. Obviously, there's been a lot of there have been other reasons why uh, we've, seen, we've seen this epidemic kind of uh, really explode. I do think that from a medical point of view, I think we've made so many advances in how we take care of patients and in, in the technologies that we use and understanding both the risks and benefits. But I can't really think of any type of medical intervention that we do that has had so much demonstrable harm and also with very little evidence. So there's a lot of studies out there that have, which are called meta-analyses, which basically pool all the available high-quality data. And the meta-analyses show that at least for chronic pain that is not because of, you know, cancer, there really is no clear benefit of opioids. So for me to sort of sit back and think about, you know, we have this therapy that has no real sort of proven durable benefit in patients with chronic pain and yet it has led to so much harm. I mean I have to say that I can't think of anything else readily that is, has been more harmful than the overuse of opioids for uh, chronic pain.
1: So to, to get back to the, the, the headline on your New York Times piece, is pain a sensation or an emotion? What do you think then is, is the best way for society to look at, at pain as a, as a sensation, as an emotion, uh, both, other, and what does that mean in terms of treatment approaches?
2: so i think that as far as chronic pain is concerned i think it is about it is as it is really as much about how you feel um, as a human being how what your emotional state is what your state of you know mental health is as it is a physical phenomenon Uh, to me it's probably uh, equal parts both i do think that you know at least in some patients you do have to have a sort of physical Reason why you're having pain, whether that's a you know prolapsed disc or degenerative uh, spine disease or osteoarthritis, but I do think that once you combine it with, um, with, with with you know with depression, with anxiety, with you know loneliness, with with you know with with, with, a, with a setting in which you're constantly paying a lot of attention to that pain, I do think that it makes it worse and it makes it more unrelenting than if if we were able to address all these other um sort of psychological issues that that uh come with pain and a lot of times there's a chicken or chicken or the egg type situation in which you know pain begets uh depression anxiety and other conditions but you also see the other in which symptoms start from a sort of mental health point of view but then they start having very really felt physical manifestations and that's why i think we can't think of one in of any one of these things in isolation. I do think that we need to think about that, about the person that we're treating uh, as a whole and thinking about all the things that are going on that affect how they feel rather than simply trying to use a specific medication to alleviate their symptoms.
1: So uh doctor uh, a few years ago the, the the CDC came out with a guideline that uh, that stated that said that uh, non-opioid therapy is preferred for treatment of chronic pain outside of cancer palliative and, and end of life care. So can you talk a little bit about uh what you feel are the the best treatment approaches to uh to the kind of pain that people might be taking opioids for now?
2: I mean, I think exercise is probably very, very important. I wouldn't have written the piece if I didn't feel like I had a very clear sense of what you know chronic pain can feel like. I, when I was in medical school, I had a debilitating back injury that then really kind of turned into really chronic pain that um, lasted for you know more than a year, and it changed my life you know I couldn't concentrate I couldn't really socialize and and it was very invisible no one could really see it no one really could empathize with it because they they, they, you know there it wasn't like I had a you know bone sticking out of my arm and what really got me out of that sort of uh, hole was really unrelenting physical therapy and exercise and I think that it allowed me to regain sort of my function it I was less scared of Going out, I was, and, and, and a lot of times it was the therapists who were working with me. I don't know whether, how much of it was the actual manipulations they were doing with my joints, but it was really the fact that they cared and they were there and I think that those things really made a difference as well. So I think that exercise and, you know, being active and really sort of taking good and taking good care of ourselves as a physical entities like for example like posture related things I mean I think those are things that we I think underuse. but certainly I think broadening the scope and I think one way to really rethink this whole opioid epidemic is to think about this as a mental health crisis and that has had this sort of specific manifestation and I think that if you are a person and if you look around you I think it's very obvious that that not only are we in a chronic pain Sort of epidemic, but a lot of it is because um, of the state of poor mental health in this country. And how can we sort of provide better access? How can we increase awareness? How can we make sure that people know it's okay to seek help? I think those. I think that no one thing is going to be able to sort of fix this, but I think that if we do broaden the scope of how we think about pain, I think that's going to be a really important first step.
1: I want to go back to one thing that you alluded to when you were talking about your own pain that that you had had back when you were in in, uh, in medical school. I believe you said there's a line in the in the New York Times piece where you say perhaps the most important tool physicians need uh, in order to manage pain is, is empathy. And and you've you've referred either with that word or with similar words uh, a few times already to to empathy. Can you just kind of talk again, just to kind of emphasize that point about the importance of empathy in what all healthcare providers do?
2: I mean, I think empathy is a, is a crucial ingredient of everything that we do. But if you think about it, I think it tells us a lot about the experience of pain as well. One way to think about empathy is that can you feel the other person's pain? If you look at someone in pain, what type of response will it generate inside of you as a human being and as a person? And the truth is that empathy, that that, that pain is, in fact, transmittable in that way. There, the, the People have actually done experiments and tests to actually see that, at, le- at least in some people when they see another human being in pain that they actually feel pain themselves or at least discomfort themselves and that is in fact i think one of the most human things about us is that when we when we look at our fellow man or woman and we see them in distress how 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 can we inhabit what they feel and to what extent can we do that and how can we respond to that appropriately and i think that we need to not only have empathetic Physi- and we we have data that suggests that if if patients get seen by physicians or you know other providers who are empathetic that they actually have a better response to whatever therapy they're prescribed. But not only do we need empathetic people taking care of patients with chronic pain, we also need a system, a health system that emphasizes that and that depends on how much time are we providing, our physicians or nurses to be able to address pain in the patients? How are we reimbursing services that may not include prescription of opioids but really other types of therapies, including physical therapy and, and the therapy services at home and other sort resources that address pain and other such issues without the prescription of, you know, drugs? Um, the way our system has been designed traditionally is that if I'm a physician, if I see someone in in pain, It's much easier for me to just, you know, in a few seconds I can give them a prescription that may last them months. But if I really want to talk to them and think about it and really sort of connect with them, that I'm actually, I'm actually not, uh, I'm in some ways discouraged from that because we don't have the time, the resources, or the emphasis really to be able to do those things. So, I mean, that's kind of where I think Not only do we need empathy to be able to treat patients at the bedside on an individual level, but really I think we need to think about how we can do it, um, how we can make our entire health system more empathetic and kind.
1: When you talk about basically reshaping the American healthcare system, I mean that that, that kind of brings me a mental image of the old uh, the old thing about turning around a battleship and and how hard that that is to do. Uh, uh, in view of all the things that we've been talking about, uh, how optimistic or not are you that this kind of change to reduce the uh, dependence on opioids and, and and pursue better approaches is is achievable?
2: I mean, I think that the first part is I, I, I think that I, I don't think that we're going to turn this into a whole battleship around in one day, but maybe we can start sending out a few lifeboats, you know, one at a time, and we can be a bit more targeted. So I think certainly, you know, having better evidence about non-opioid strategies for pain is I think one step that we can we can increase funding for that we can increase resources that we give our clinicians and researchers who are both studying this and also sort of utilizing that in their in their practice so for example, the v a now actually really gives a lot of support for non opioid Strategies for pain management. So I think that's one thing. I think we also need to change the sort of culture on the end of patients. I think that, uh, you know, I've had, I've increasingly, I have patients who come and say very adamantly that I'm in pain, I'm not very comfortable, but I'm okay and I don't want opioids. Hmm. And if they are, if they're not in, A lot of distress. I am okay with that. I don't think that it's worth it to be in, you know, active distress, but I think that part of it is also that this expectation that we will be pain free is one of the root causes of, of this. And I think that as, as people become more aware, of you know the, the the basic psychobiology of pain, I think the more likely we are to actually reach a sort of uh, sort of equilibrium, both as a health system, but also on the sort of patient side, about how much pain control do we want, and what is the price that we're willing to pay for it.
1: When you get those kinds of requests from patients that they that they don't want uh, opioids if it's at all avoidable, do do you feel like that's kind of a societal recognition that the, all the news reports of uh, of opioid deaths and everything are kind of getting through and 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 making a, making an impact?
2: I think it has made an impact. I mean, not only news, but I think so many people now personally know people or so many people have had a personal history of being dependent on opioids, and now. They've been able to come off of opioids and and actually feel better than they did when they were taking them all the time, so I do think that it's having an effect, and that's one of the reasons I wrote the piece as well and um and part of why I focused on this in the upcoming book as well is because you know i I really sort of want people to know that you know especially in this sort of chronic setting. Uh, that pain is unlikely to actually harm you. It does cause distress, and that's a personal choice about, you know, how much distress are we willing to take. Certainly my goal as a physician is not to have patients who are comfortable, but I've also seen that it can be that the idea that we can make everyone pain-free is just the goal that cannot always be achieved.
1: So, so there's kind of a message there. Uh, pain probably isn't going to kill you, but opioids might. <laughs>
2: Well, certainly, and, and there's, uh, it's, uh, there is in fact data that uses use the numerical scale for pain in which you know patients who were strictly provided pain control based on what number they assigned actually had more opioid overdoses in in the hospital in a very monitored setting. So it's uh, not just my
1: opinion, but that's a reality. One last question, uh, in in a practical sense, what's your advice for anyone who's experiencing chronic pain or knows someone who is? but feels like the he or she or that person is being steered toward opioids without being sufficiently apprised of other options?
2: I think that you know it's hard to sort of give very general sort of advice, but I think that best thing that a patient can do is they can always ask questions. A patient has the right to be very comfortable with whatever option they're being offered or whatever sort of therapy that they're sort of undergoing. And they always have the right to get more information directly from their physicians or nurses and they have the right to ask for alternatives, they have the right to ask for risks and benefit, and not just for opioids but for really any type of therapy or any type of treatment that they receive. I guess my advice to anyone is really is to just do that, is to is to not be rushed, is to really ask the, that's the questions that they have, is to go in prepared when they go see a physician and to really get the care that they want, that they deserve and not have any unanswered questions at the end of a visit. And, uh, and I think preparation is really helpful. I think having advocates, people around you who are you know concerned, who are involved, I think that's really important. And I think once you get started on any of these therapies, also then asking the question about wh- where is this going? Is there a plan to wean these medicines? Is there a plan to actually take care of the underlying cause uh, of why? the pain exists. So I think, I think those are some of the strategies. And then as far as what the individual level of decision making is concerned, I think that can then be much more patient-centered.
1: Dr. Hyder Farash, thank you so much for speaking with us on Move Forward Radio.
0: Thank you so much, Eric. You've been listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guests is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or find previous episodes at MoveForwardPT.com. Move Forward Radio is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Find a physical therapist near you at MoveForwardPT.com.